Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with writer Laura Cook-Bolt. Thanks for coming on the show, Laura. Oh, thanks for having me. Of course. And I want to talk about your book, Unraveled. But first, I'd really like to hear about how you found recovery. So what did life look like before you got sober? And when did you become aware that there were maybe some issues with addiction going on? I grew up in an alcoholic family and my mother was in recovery, but growing up, I always promised myself that I would never end up being an alcoholic. And uh, of course, we know that that's impossible, at least for most to control because it controls us, we don't control it. So I think that it's not only genetically predisposed with a few generations of alcoholism and addiction, Uh, it's also an environmental factor that I grew up with. Uh, When I was about, uh, well, going through my college years and in my 20s, I experimented with almost every drug possible, including drinking and uh, to to access. And when I got into my mid to late 20s, things seemed to go a little bit more dormant. I'm not really sure why, but I, I just decided that that sort of lifestyle was really not the best in conjunction with my career and and my friendships and family and so forth. I got married when I was about 30. And in about um, when my youngest son was two, and that was in 2002, I really noticed that the amount of alcohol that I was drinking had increased quite a bit. And the effects effects were, were not great. And I think deep down, I knew that I was an alcoholic, but I was too afraid to address those fears. And for me, what that meant was, uh, as an adult, having children in the house, I would always gear my carpool pickups, any sort of parenting responsibilities uh, to what worked out for me and my drinking so that I wasn't driving a car. Mm. And... I always had a bottle of red wine open in in the family room, one in the kitchen. I hadn't gotten to the point of actually hiding the bottles, but I was kidding myself by having all these bottles sort of distributed throughout the house so everybody could see them. And then I sort of decide, which room am I gonna pour a glass from now? Um, And and during this um, period of time, when I was still actively drinking, my husband did approached me and asked me, do you think that the amount of alcohol that you're drinking has increased or do you think that it's affecting you? Mm. 
a little bit differently. And at that point, I thought, wow, bingo. Um, I've been I've been found out. Hmm. I could no longer in my mind's eye hide it. And you probably know this and experts say that usually the family is the first to see your alcoholism in right. action prior to your willingness to be aware of it. Right. So I think from that point on, uh, well, all right, let's backtrack a little bit. Some of the things that I did, which I mentioned in my book, uh, were comparable to that of maybe a 13 or 14 year old. For example, I used to love stealing, <laughs> stealing vehicles and uh, I was in Colorado with a group of friends and we hijacked a snowcat and I swung from rafters and I did all these things that I thought was, you know, that were really, really funny. But here I have a mom of children behaving more like a child than my own children. And I think it really dawned on me with that conversation with my husband. It was really time to, to grow up. And uh, at that point, when he brought it to my attention, I had to go do some more field work. Mm. I mean, as much as I wanted to quit drinking, yeah. I got to a point where I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Um, I felt so much shame and so much guilt. And the only thing that would make me feel better is, is drinking more, at least mm -hmm. at the time I thought that was the answer. Yeah. So ultimately what happened was, um, fast forward to 2008, I was at a, a, a party, a family party, and I had driven myself there because I was visiting my mother at the time um, who lived in a aftercare facility for dementia. And um, I showed up at the house with my own car, drank, drank. And unfortunately on the way home, I had a really bad car accident. And for what that meant for me was that the airbags employed I somehow made it home. I went to bed. The next morning I woke up, I walked outside because I had uh, to pick up one of my sons from a friend's house. And I saw this airbag and this deployed, this windshield totally totaled, the car totaled. Wow. And I thought, wow, what happened? Which kid of mine got up and, and took the car for a joyride? Well, I did piece some of it back together but not all of it. So for me, that was the end of my drinking and the beginning of my program of recovery. I was scared shitless. I didn't yeah. know if I had killed somebody, if I had, what would, what, what's it going to take for me the next time to sure. realize that I have a huge problem? Yeah. Wow. And that, that is really scary. Well, I, I, you know, I just wanted to ask you real quick. So you mentioned, you know, having the, the bottles all over the house and stuff like that. And, and I, totally get what you're saying about you know your husband approaching you we we feel like we've hidden all of this so well beyond uh not not to diminish this at all but beyond you know the wine around the house and things like the car wreck what were some of the behaviors that that maybe now you know about that he was seeing at the time that you thought you were hiding like what what were some of the things that you think were raising red flags for him enough to finally say something? Well, the more obvious things would be going out at night and having too much to drink inevitably and slurring my words Okay, and needing to be the life of the party. So mm. it was, it was relatively benign compared to a lot of other stories we hear. Sure. Uh, but it was a little bit more than just being a garden variety alcoholic. Okay. Um, okay. And then I think there were things like uh, coming home after a night of being out and I wanted nothing to do with taking the babysitters home and 
there were just little bitty signals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also, uh, I, I think for about a year prior on a Sunday morning with a hangover, I would Google rehab centers because I knew I was in trouble. Uh, and, and eventually after about an hour of that, I would just close the laptop and say, Oh, maybe next week. Mm -hmm. So this went on for about a year okay. and I was just too damn afraid. Yeah. I thought, who's going to watch the kids? Who's going to drive carpool? And, right. And I think at that point, I may have been concerned about the image of having my shit all together mm. and not having anybody know, you know, exactly what was happening uh, from the outside. It's all about looking good and it doesn't match our insides. Right. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And and I certainly understand the the doing the research because I was doing research for a long time, you know, rehab facilities. And uh, I didn't really do anything, but I was definitely trying to find, uh, you know, what what some 12 step refer, uh, programs refer to as the easier, softer way, you know, maybe like a book about how to, you know, control your drug use or or do it moderately or, or whatever. I was looking for all those things like that. So you have this horrible car wreck. Um, and, and what happens? Does that just like, is your family like, okay, you've got to do something. Are you so scared that it, that it just pushes you to do something about it? Why, what, why did you actually go and get help after that? So when I walked outside and I saw the car completely totaled and I had to, asked my husband for his set of keys so I could go pick up my son because mine was my car was inoperable. I have no idea how I got my car home. It was completely totaled or why I was even standing. Um, I picked up my son and I felt about the most shame and remorse and guilt that I've ever felt. I felt terrible about myself. I was terrified. I was scared. Did I kill somebody? What happened? I couldn't put the pieces together. When I got back home, uh, I really kind of stood in the driveway and I feel like I had an epiphany. I felt like my higher power uh, was, was speaking to me in a way that I've never heard. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what's it's gonna, what is it gonna take if I don't listen now? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. even so I went inside and started sweeping and doing all these things that I didn't have to think about exactly what was, you know, the elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, and then my husband looked at me and he said, would you like to talk about it? And I said, I really would. So we had a pretty serious conversation. And I said, I really think that I'm an alcoholic and I can't ever drink again. And he was from a family where his father and a couple of his father's friends started a 12 step program in St. Louis for a friend of theirs that could not maintain a sobriety. And his dad was a physician and he happened to be one of the only physicians for a great period of time in this rehab facility. He himself was not a recovering alcoholic, but he, he had the compassion and the determination and the faith to help provide our community with a, a system that would help his friend first and help others. Hmm. And my husband grew up in that kind of environment with that sort of conversation at the table. So my husband was really, really compassionate. And in some ways that affected me more than if he had just gotten mad at me. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I, I also felt like I had done a few things that had really embarrassed my kids. And that to me was something I, I told myself I was never going to do growing up. So I had broken a promise, not only to myself, but to my family and to my children. Uh, 
But it's one of those things where I thought about it for many years. I had thought about, gosh, I've got to quit drinking. I'd look at myself in the mirror and say, you are not going to have too much to drink tonight. You are not going to have too much to drink tonight. And inevitably, I would always have too much to drink. Sure. And I could never bring myself to the point of surrender. Hmm. And that's what happened that morning for me. Um, after the accident was I completely surrendered Mm. and it was, it was a combination of emotions, fear, relief, um, shame, um, just, I was scared straight. It really was. Wow. Yeah. That, that does sound scary. And yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of stories like that. And, and I certainly had some of my own where it's like, you know, the car is there, whether you got in a wreck or not, but you don't know like how you got home or, or maybe there is a, even a dent or a whatever. And you're just clueless, you know? And I mean, that is really scary. So thankfully, you know, you weren't hurt. No one else got hurt. Um, and you know, you mentioned the, the shame and the guilt you felt. And I, I think so often, now we talk about those things in a negative light, which I think 99% of the time they are right. Like it's, you know, it's this guilt and this shame that, you know, prevent us from really finding recovery or, or finding this life that we want or whatever. But I also know that for me, kind of like, uh, as you were describing in your own story, it was that shame and that guilt that really, like push the pain to the next level to where I was motivated enough to get help. Uh, So does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It does. And, um, you know, there was shame and guilt in my life prior to my drinking. Uh, Yeah, sure. And growing up in an alcoholic family, I assumed a lot of other people's things that weren't mine to own. Mm. And uh, that's something that we get to work on in recovery, not to sound daunting, but there was some trauma in my, in my childhood that um, I, was, I was able to avoid thinking about by, by drinking. And what's, what's interesting is I went to a number of, of therapists in my, in my 20s, and I got to the point where they would catch on to me, like they were on to me. And so I'd switch therapists. And the, and the last one I had before I got sober would always have me say the serenity prayer with him. And I went, God, this guy knows what I'm all about. Interesting. I I am in so much trouble. I cannot see this guy. He's, Mm -hmm. he's very calmly and professionally trying to guide me into a way that I could actually see not only what the source of my problems were, Mm -hmm. but what I was doing to put a bandaid on those problems, which was some pretty serious drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't let these people know what's really going on. You right? sure can. <laughs> and it's amazing how much time you have when you get sober. Yeah. You have more, so much more time and you don't have to hide. And it's uh that's one of thousands of ways we feel relief. Sure. Sure. When we're sober. So, so walk me through this and, and your next real steps into starting your recovery journey. I mean, you have this, what sounds like a really constructive conversation with your husband and he's, you know, understanding because of, of some of the way uh, that he was raised and family background and so on, which is always extremely, uh, extremely helpful. And uh, what's next? What, what do you do? Do you go into treatment or what happens from there? 
So what happened from there is that I called a family friend of mine who I knew helped my mother. And he was, he had been in the program of his, his recovery program. Well, he's a 12 step program for years. Mm. And I called him on the phone and I said, um, Dick, I need, I need some help. I'm an alcoholic. And he said, well, all right, let's, let's meet at Starbucks in about an hour. So I said, great. So I went upstairs, took a shower. Um, after I took a shower, I leaned over, put my hair in a towel, stood up, went downstairs for something. And, and Tommy looked at my forehead and he said, mom, what the hell just happened? You have this huge bump on your forehead. You didn't have it 30 minutes ago. And I hadn't hit my head. So he said, I don't like this. It keeps getting bigger. He called an ambulance. I ended up going to the hospital, calling another friend of mine, uh, a contemporary of mine who was also in the program. And she joined me at the hospital. Hmm. And the bottom line is that the neurologist said, you have had a major um, head injury. You had, I may be classifying this incorrectly, but a subdermal hematoma. Uh, the injury was inside your head. And when you put your head down, the blood had a, a cavity to go in. And hence oh, you wow. had the bomb party. And uh, a very bad um, um, concussion. Mm -hmm. And I said, doctor, I'm an alcoholic. I know it. He said, well, your, your labs are all fine. You don't have the, the stomach of an alcoholic. You don't look like an alcoholic. He said, listen, I know you told me you had blackouts, but that's because you hit your head. I mean, literally he was trying to talk me out of thinking wow. I was an alcoholic because yeah. I didn't look the part mm -hmm. yet, mm -hmm. yet. And um, I remember having an MRI and I, I was crying and the, and the woman said, well, honey, it's not going to hurt the nurse. And I said, no, I know it's not going to hurt, but my parents or my in-laws had been killed in a car accident three years prior, my husband's parents. And I thought, what could you imagine if my husband's me, me wife, mother, mother of my children uh, had died in a car accident because of alcoholism. And, and that's just another thing that triggered my absolute need to go into some program of recovery. So what I ended up doing two days later, I, and without having a drink in between, I, I went to a meeting with a friend of mine who had met me at the hospital, very good friend of mine, who, wow. uh, whose name is Meredith. She's in the book and uh, she helped save my life. We, we were in the hospital laughing, crying and laughing and crying. And I was with somebody that completely understood, but somebody who supported my decision to get help. And uh, that's what I did. I started become, I became a very um, dedicated meeting um, and program follower in a 12 step yeah. program. And wow. uh, found a sponsor, became a sponsor, worked the steps, still do. It's been 12 years, a little over 12 years. And for me, that's the program that has consistently worked. Although I really missed out on going to rehab because everybody has all these great stories. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, okay, now maybe I'll go, go to rehab and, and do some do some work and bond. Right, right. So Well, I, I can tell you, you're probably not missing much there. <laughs> yeah, is that right? Yeah, I, I, okay. I think you're, I think you're okay that you just, uh, that you, you slid past that part. And I always think it's... Uh, I, you know, everyone's story is a little different, but I always think it's an amazing thing when someone can, you know, bypass that part or however you want to phrase it and, and go right into, uh, you know, a program of recovery. I think that's a really amazing thing. What I, what I really like uh, that you just described there is that when you needed help, 
awesome that your family was there and, and supportive for sure. But that you reached out to two people who are in a recovery program that immediately made themselves available. I think that's such an awesome thing. And that's, that's been a huge part of, of my experience as well. Um, so, you know, I, I did want to ask about your book, of course, and, and okay. I just mentioned that your friend Meredith, who helped you out, who we were just talking about is in the book. So your book is titled Unraveled, A Mother and Son Story of Addiction and Redemption. So now you and your son, uh, Tommy, wrote this book together, correct? We did. Okay, okay. And um, from what I gather, it's kind of from both perspectives. Is that right? Like he's writing some parts, you're writing other parts? Uh, it's primarily deals with a little bit of my own background, but it deals with Tommy's journey, uh, starting with some events in his childhood that were pretty severe. Um, it, he was, he was bullied um, and not, not in a light way. Hmm. And he takes us through his, his elementary school, high school years. And then what I do is I kind of interject from uh, chapter to chapter, uh, reflecting on what my version of his story was, which is fairly similar, but of course, a mother's perspective is, is always a little bit different. Um, when we get into the real serious parts of Tommy's addiction, I was sober. So I, I'm very grateful for that because had I been actively drinking, yeah, I think it would have been a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure. And so just to let our, our listeners and the people watching this in uh, here, what we're going to do is, is we're actually going to have your son on on the next episode. And we're going to kind of make this a two part deal. And I think that's I think that's a really cool idea what you guys did, you know, because there are two perspectives. And like I was sharing with you, I'd really like to have our listeners uh, get those two perspectives. And so we're going to have him on the next episode to talk about uh, this book and what was going on in, in his life and his, his perspective a little bit more as well. But what, what really uh, pushed you to write this book? Like why, why did you decide to do this? Hobby brought it up to me several years ago. And of course this book from conception to completion took three years, Oh wow! but um, he was a couple of years sober and he said, mom, we really ought to write a book. Hmm. And I said, oh, that's a great idea. And then I started thinking about it. And I thought, that's a great mm-hmm. idea, but how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was an English major, but it doesn't necessarily make me uh, an author. Uh, where do we go? How do we do this? When do we start? He's in California. I'm in St. Louis. How do we do this? And he persisted. And after about a year and a half, I said, that sounds great. I'm ready to do it. Let's let's sit down and talk to some people that, that know what it takes and get some advice and and go from there. And uh, one of the reasons we decided on the format of a narrative, first of all, is it's it's firsthand storytelling and it's it's real and it's honest and it's raw and it's believable. Second of all, um, his story um, is very, very important from a, a young man's perspective um, about what happens uh, going into sobriety and how he maintains his sobriety. And I, I felt as though that was a, a very critical and important story uh, to tell, to help younger people see that there's hope and there, 
and there's a way out even when you are faced with the demise that Tommy was faced with. Number two, I, I really wanted to help my own generation understand um, that they're not alone as parents of addicts. And, and for those people that are actively drinking that have questions about their own drinking, uh, I'm hoping that, that we get some of those listeners that, um, you know, you could be a garden, garden variety alcoholic. You can be one that doesn't have the sort of crazy minded behavior I had, but one that maybe isolates and drinks at home, that there is hope for that. And, and there is, of course, there's not a cure, but there's a solution. And, and we are all out there, those of us in recovery, that would do anything to help anybody. I mean, that's how it works. That's how the success of this program works. Yeah. And uh, so we have a, a number of different audiences. I just didn't think that mine was that interesting. Um, you know, people are, oh, that's just an old lady, 60-year-old lady talking about how she quit drinking. And I think a, a child, he's not a child, but a young man's story is seemingly more raw and uh, because of the level of his addiction and how it occurred so rapidly and so quickly mm. um, and almost fatally uh, to get to give people hope uh, mm. based on what what uh, happened to Tommy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about my own story so much and I'm thinking about how as I've been sober, you know, for for almost or over seven years now that there's been a lot of things because of, of doing this show and just, you know, being open about my recovery that my mom has learned over the years that she definitely didn't know at the time, you know, funny things for sure, but also, you know, some pretty dark specific stuff about how I was feeling, what I was dealing with, what I was going through. I'd have to imagine that there were probably some pretty, deep and and hard conversations going on as you were laying out even the outline for this book and and starting to um as you were starting to learn more what was that did you find that you learned a lot of things that you didn't know about what tommy was dealing with and writing this book absolutely and one of the things that i learned the most about was uh, the series of events that occurred for him in a prep school during elementary school in which he was severely bullied, hmm. uh, you know, kicked in the kidneys until he had blood in his urine, uh, and just a number of things that occurred during the co course of that year, year and a half, where I knew he was experiencing anxiety and trouble, and and uh, with socially and and with bullying, and I don't say bullying lightly because it's an overused term, and I have four sons. And they all beat the heck out of each other growing up. And it's just a rite of passage. But, uh, but ultimately, they are so close. And, and that was Tommy's safe haven on the weekends, being with family. But at school, it was so traumatic. So when we were writing the book and going through this, there were some of the events that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And I really had to stop and do some work. I, I thought, you know, I'm behaving in a codependent fashion because I have to call him up and say, are you sure you're okay? Yes, you're 29 years old, but are you sure you're all right from when you were 13? And, right. and revisit these conversations. And I, I think from a mother's perspective, there's one thing worse than having an addicted uh, son in terms of your concern, and that is losing a child. 
And, um, and, and with that comes the trauma perhaps that played into that. So we had a lot of conversations about that in many facets. Uh, were, you, were you abused? No, I was not abused. Were you, you were bullied. Well, that's a form of abuse. Uh, he did go to a Catholic school, so we use the word abuse. And uh, the school has had an occasion of, of sexual abuse. That's not so uncommon with alcoholics. Uh, this did not happen to Tommy, but I think the, the bullying was the predominant factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also think that people are born with a certain wiring uh, that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, anxiety, for example, mm-hmm. or ADHD or things that we know can contribute to the abuse of alcohol and drugs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and on the flip side of you finding all of this out, I'd have to imagine that there was just a lot of growth in your own recovery, learning things about yourself, learning things about him, as you said, like some of these things you were having to do some, some work on as you were finding this stuff out. Um, and then, you know, his own growth going through this. Do you feel like you came out on the other side of this with a, a stronger recovery? Absolutely. And I think that it, it actually brought us both into the, the middle of the boat and we, we worked a, a serious program. He has his and I have mine. We don't cross those lines. But at that time, I needed also to learn uh, not to interfere with his feelings or his program. And I had an amazing therapist that I still see uh, every once in a while. And I, and I think that that was a very important part of my recovery. My therapist was in the same program of recovery, and uh, that helped me quite a bit. And uh, Tommy also took care of himself as well. So I think that uh, not only did we come out on the other side of it, it it deepened our understanding and respect for each other's situations and uh, respect for how powerful um, trauma can be and how powerful this disease can be. you know, having a child with an addiction issue is not a parenting malfunction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a disease. It's a demise. So yeah. much of it is out of our control. Yeah. And so much of what happens that we realize in recovery uh, that's out of our control is something that we have to work on a, on, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a good lead up to really taking better care of ourselves and and uh, I had to learn to really step back. I mean, Tommy's a grown man and he doesn't ask me to solve his, his problems for him. Therefore, if he's not asking me to, then I have to allow him the space and time to um, go through whatever he needs to go through to become stronger. And the same goes with me. Yeah. So it was, it was really the most amazing experience and one that could have only come out of um, our mutual sobriety. Hmm. Wow. That, that's incredible. Yeah. It sounds like there was a lot of, uh, growth there to, to say the least. I mean, it sounds like you both, uh, really came out on the other side of writing this and in just a pretty different place. It sounds like a different place, but by the way, I would still swing from a rafter and I'd still take a ride. <laughs> to I just would be, I'd remember it. <laughs> I mean, we're not, as they say, we're not a glum lot. We have a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and as I said in the book, it, it's not about igniting your uh, laughter with uh, alcohol. It's 
it's genuine uh, joy and uh, genuine laughter. And it, it just feels really, really good. And of course there are, life happens. Mm-hmm. There, there are challenges in relationships. Um, I've survived two heart attacks, which have nothing to do with anything other than a, a genetic predisposition. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, I actually was asymptomatic. So when I had it, I had no idea what was, wow. what was coming my way. Um, I like to uh, hike in the mountains and, and that's where I was at the time and at a high elevation and it just happened and uh, survived it, had another one, survived it. I still climbed a 14er couple years after that. And uh, we go on, we live our lives. We cannot control what happens to us hmm. uh, for the most part or what comes out of left field. What we, we can do is accept it and, and try to move on with you know, our lives by taking care of our sobriety first for me. That's number one, because without it, um, I have nothing. And without paying attention to my spiritual condition, uh, which can come in many forms for, for different people. Um, getting quiet. Uh, one of the things that my father-in-law used to say as a physician and, and working with people in, in addiction is, uh, don't just do something, stand there. Hmm. Which is the opposite of what we hear. Yeah. And uh, it makes a lot of sense in, in almost every facet of our life. We have to allow that time to to sort through things and think and not react. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I really like that. Uh, you know, I read through a few of the reviews on Amazon of the book, and time and time again, what got mentioned is just how the readers appreciated uh, your honesty, your openness about your story. The complete opposite of of what you said you know, you wanted before you got sober, you didn't want anyone to know what was going on, which I completely understand. Why do you feel it's important to to be transparent about your journey? I feel comfortable being transparent about it for for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. For my own general well-being and honesty and state of accountability, and as well as uh, providing people with hope. I want to help as many people as I can. Um, not only is that part of the program of recovery I work, it's uh, what keeps me in the program. If I'm actively working with people or sharing my story, then I'm staying in the middle of the boat. And I'm staying close to my program. And, you know, as Tommy reminds me all the time, there, there's only one way when you coast and that's downhill. Mm. And, and, for me, stay close to uh, either helping somebody or, um, you know, having relationships with people in sobriety. That's that's um, that's the way I can continue on on my path of growth and uh, stay stay as I said in the middle of the boat with yeah. my sobriety. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I would have to uh, agree with you for myself that when life is going on and, you know, because like you, uh, I, I think you've described, you know, there's so many gifts that we get out of, of this deal and, and life does get good. And I think it's so important for, for people to hear that, especially, you know, when we're new to this, I definitely needed to hear that, you know, that life does get, get better. And, and there's so many gifts that are out there for us and that there's really no limit to it has, has been my experience. But, 
Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that working with others has just always kept me plugged in. I, I'm just going to repeat what you said. I, I think that's the way I think about it. It's when, when I've got all these other things going on, busy life, work, I'm a dad now, all this great stuff or even bad stuff that comes up that I'm getting consumed with and maybe in my own head a little bit this other person that I'm, I'm working with, or these other people that I'm helping, um, you know, they take me out of that. And, and there's so much, we talked about growth and writing the book. I think that's where the real growth in, in recovery is. I, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Like how much you think you've grown just in working with, with others. I think it's everything in my recovery. I, I really learn a lot about myself when I work with other people mm -hmm. and it, as much as it's nice to help other people, selfishly, I do it for myself because yeah. it helps me. Yeah. I like hearing somebody's story. First of all, look at how young you are. How cool is that? That you get to be a parent that's sober. You're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. That's not to deter anybody that is my age. I was 48 when I got sober. I'm 60 now. It's never too late ever, True. never too late, True. but for, for you and for Tommy to be young men, um, leading their life in, in good health. And it's just, that is about the hugest gift of all mm -hmm. being a better friend, a better husband, a better parent, um, better for yourself. So I, I just, um, I really enjoy the opportunity to write this book with Tommy. I, I enjoy the opportunities I get to have with all of my sons. I'm not going to write books with all of them, but I get to hike a mountain with one of them. I get to do all sorts of neat um, and meaningful events with my, with my sons and with my husband Yeah, that aren't fueled by uh, drinking and my addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. It really is. And, yeah. and I'll tell you, I, I do not want to relapse. I know a lot of people that have, and they make it back into the program. I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I just think it's amazing. I don't know whether I would. So the fact that I live with a little bit of fear about what relapse would mean for me, I'm okay with. Um, I read this really great book. I've read it several times called why is God laughing? And it, it's by Deepak Chopra. It's an amazing book. And it's especially great for people maybe in any program of recovery because it, um, it kind of takes you out of yourself and allows you to have a sense of humor a little bit about what's happened. And one of the things though that he did say is that, that he didn't like about my particular program of recovery is that you're sort of beaten to a pulp about being afraid to relapse. Mm. Well, that's where I don't agree with him. I'm okay with it. I don't walk around fearful, but for example, little things like before being able to have this opportunity to speak with you, I meditated because really the message I want to send here is that uh, one of hope and one of opportunity for people out there that are questioning uh, whether or not they need help. And that's important. It's really important. And if I didn't have, uh, I, I feel like, for example, if I don't, focus on my spiritual connection or have silence in my life, like meditation, that I, that I might, it's, it's a possibility I could relapse. Yeah. As I said, there's a solution. There's not a cure. So it's a, it's a daily maintenance and we're not perfect. 
um, will never be perfect. It's just, if you can be in a situation where you can make progress, it's sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow. Uh, It doesn't matter as long as you continue to take care of yourself, which is not at all what I was doing prior in my addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am with you on that one. Now I want to go back to talking about uh, you being a mom. I want to ask if you think that there are maybe some barriers that you think mothers face in addiction that, that should be discussed more, maybe uh, that, that, you know, in looking back on your own story, because again, like I, I think one of the coolest things about this book that we were just talking about is just how you got to look at this from so many different angles. And there's so many moms out there that are trying to navigate all this. Like we've had a few moms on the show that are in recovery now. And, and a lot of what gets talked about these days is like the mommy wine culture stuff, you know, and it's, I mean, it's in large part, like what you were describing, you know, bottles around the house, which one am I going to drink, you know, kind of a seemingly casual thing, not a big deal until it is. Um, But yeah, I I guess I just wanted to get your take on that. If you think there's any things that moms in in addiction or dealing with addiction come up against that um, should be thought about or maybe aren't discussed very often. So for me, being a mother, one of the things that I was was not in touch with was faith, um, being quiet, uh, any form of meditation. So the the end of the day, you have four kids, they're running around, they're fighting, they're screaming, they have to be in 10 places at one time. Uh, and, you know, for me, the only way to relax was to drink. And I didn't ever get to that ultimate place of peace by drinking. So I had to drink another and another, and it was progressive. Uh, I think that, um, and I did work until my part-time after my, my fourth was, was born a little bit more than part-time until my third was born and trying to balance, uh, work, be a mom, be a wife, um, take care of the house. Uh, you know, my husband is a great, great man. I mean, he's a great father and a great participant, um, in our life. But I think at some point mothers feel like it's all on them to make all the plans, all the take care of all everybody's schedules, right. put foot on the table, um, you know, make sure that everybody has the right clothes, gets their homework done, their, just a multitude of things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a capability of finding that place of calm uh, at all. I th- Because I thought the drinking was a get out of hell free card and I could, I could do that really easily where now I think there's more discussion on what do we get to do? There are a lot of younger people that go to yoga class. There are a lot of people that meditate. There's more communication about it. But as we think about what goes on right now, particularly for young mothers at home with their children because of COVID, Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know. I think that's a very, very difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, as we know, addiction is the disease of isolation whether you're outgoing or not, and and then being physically isolated and feeling trapped, uh, there are other solutions other than drinking. And I think they do make certain 
classes available online that they could do at a, at a downtime um, that might be life-saving for them mm-hmm. and to connect with other people and, and see how they're doing instead of having Zoom cocktail hours, which I'm sure is fun. And there are many people that drink, obviously, that, that don't have addiction problems. So I'm not, um, but I just think it's a, it's a very difficult time right now for people, even more so than usual. And, uh, but it's still not an excuse. Yeah. It's an explanation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you just mentioned a couple of things there, you know, the spirituality, the meditation being important to you. Um, but can you give us a little more of an idea of, of what your recovery looks like on a daily basis? I think you've mentioned bits and pieces throughout, but just kind of pull it together for us and maybe fill us in on some of the things that, that you're doing just to, uh, I, I'm not going to say maintain, I'm going to say grow uh, in, sure. in your recovery. Sure. Maintain sort of equivalent with coasting, I guess. Um, I wake up in the morning and I, <clears throat> not always, I try to think about the things I'm grateful for. Mm. I get up and make my bed every day. And I, while I'm making my bed, I think of those things I'm grateful for. As I said, nothing's all the time and nothing's perfect. Um, my higher power is God. I thank God for my sobriety. That's first and foremost and for my family. And I have some books, uh, recovery books, where I read daily meditations. I do that in the morning. I work with a sponsor who I'm in touch with on a regular basis. I think every day I connect with somebody that's in the program just to shoot the breeze. It's not all program talk, but just check in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are things that I do consciously meditating. I need to do more of, I always feel better afterwards. It's like exercise. We always feel better after we exercise and, and some days we just don't feel like it. But we have to do those things in order to feel better than why isn't it easier to do them? Well, it's just not. But <laughs> we know I'll feel better if I eat right. I don't have a lot of sugar if I, yeah. if I eat well and I run. And I, um, so I, I, I try to, to do this with consistency. And when I'm feeling um, restless and discontent and a little bit blue, I know that that's the answer. And I know that I haven't been checking in with myself to maintain, not maintain, to grow uh, in my program. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'd like to have a daily reprieve for my drinking. And the only way I could do that, or my, my stinking thinking is, Mm -hmm. is to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I, I know I'm, I've definitely, recommitted, I'll say to, to regular meditation. And I I think, you know, one of the biggest barriers for me in the beginning with meditation, and, and it looks different for everyone, right? For me, I really like just on my phone, uh, like insight timer is a great free app for anyone listening. They literally have hundreds of different types of meditations, all free. Um, one of the biggest barriers for me for meditation was how like thinking that man people do this for like an hour and i'm i'm not kidding you sometimes i'll do the ones that are literally three minutes long just to 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 get it in you know and because i do always feel better you're so right about that and trying to meditate is a it's a it's an art 
And I like to, I have a breathe app, which is great. I like that. And, yeah. And I sometimes like guided meditations and sometimes I just like music mm-hmm. and, and probably my favorite method. I spent a lot of time in Colorado, which I'm very, very fortunate that I can do that. I really like to be outside. Mm. We are as a family outside people, athletic, and I really feel like I get in touch with so much if I'm sitting by water or if I can be out in the, in the, you know, the forest um, here in St. Louis, just sitting out in my backyard on a beautiful day and just trying to get quiet in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as it's not easy. It's not easy. And yeah. it takes not, practice. Yeah. Not easy, but certainly as you said, and uh, I would have to agree with important for sure. And, uh, and there are just, you know, a multitude of benefits there. Now, before we wrap up, I want to ask if there's maybe one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation, whether it be someone that's, you know, questioning uh, whether they have, you know, an issue with uh, addiction, whether it's someone that's new to recovery, someone that's been around for a while, if there's just one piece of advice that you'd like to share. All right. So that's opening a can of worms. I'll try to do one or two pieces (laughs) for, for people out there that are questioning whether or not they need help. I would, I would say, try to try to get to a place of feeling vulnerable is not a bad thing. Just getting honest with yourself and, and discussing it with somebody you feel close to. And perhaps um, there are people you can discuss it with too. clergy, your doctor, people you may know in the program, uh, a best friend, um, be okay with asking somebody to listen and, and to help. Of course, when we're deep in our addiction, it's kind of hard to ask for help. But if you're questioning it, ask, ask for help. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. nothing to be ashamed of. It's one of those things um, that you will always um, be, be happy with and proud of that you were able to do. For people in sobriety, I think there are junctures where we still need to ask for help. We never get to a point where all students and we don't graduate from this program, we get better and we get to ask for help. And one of the biggest things that I think that can ultimately destroy somebody is having resentments and having um, being unaccountable for behavior. So if you can find your way to making amends with people that you may have harmed um, and also working with somebody on things that you are resentful about because there comes a point in time where um, we are responsible for for a lot of things that we've done that have contributed to our own demise but we have to forgive ourselves Mm -hmm. and the way to do that is to unleash that fear of amends with others uh, making amends to yourself uh, and, and not carrying resentments. We have to let go. We have to forgive. That's a, it's a very, very big part. And it's, and that's not easy either, but boy, when you do, and when you can get to that point that you're ready to tackle the next thing that may come up for you mm-hmm. and not feel overwhelmed. I, I love all of that. And I think that's such a great point. You know, we, there are still going to be opportunities no matter where we are in our sobriety, even if someone's been sober, you know, 30, 40 years where, you know, we still need to be able to, I still need, I'll rephrase it. I still need to be able to 
you know, humble myself a little bit and say, Hey, I, you know, I don't have this all figured out. I need some help. That's right. That's right. And uh, I really do hope that this, this podcast and radio show will help others. And I hope that reading our book will, will offer hope. And I think it, I think it will. Yeah. I think it's a very readable book. So I, I send uh, my compassion out in the world and, and um, hope that everybody uh, can get to a point in life where they feel comfortable sharing because I get kind of tired of work. We're in this together. You know, I get tired of that relative to COVID. I'm like, oh, I don't mean to be a doubter with that. But we are. This is a team effort. We don't have to do all these things on our own. We really don't. And and that's important to remember. You're not an island um, and uh, you're not alone, yeah. really. Yeah, that's all such great advice. So be sure to grab your copy of Unraveled at unraveledthebook.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Laura. Thank you for having me. It's been a, It's really been fun. Thank you. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.